But now we're returning to the book of Numbers, which you've been studying for the past couple of weeks. And if you've never heard a sermon from the book of Numbers, you are not alone. This is very rare and unusual book to preach through, but we've been going through the books of the Pentateuch every summer for the past who knows how many years. It feels like it's been a long, long time. And Numbers as a book can seem incredibly distant from us chronologically. But the reality is the way we see God's people acting and the way we see God reacting to His people is so closely connected to our lives today. Last week, Bob talked about how the people of God, the people of Israel, complained about not having any meat. They were just eating manna every day, and they said, it would be great if we could have some meat, and if we don't get it, we should just go back to Egypt. Things were better when we were slaves in Egypt. What a crazy statement. And in the face of such a crazy statement, it might be easy for us to distance ourselves from such rebellion against God. We would never say or do anything like that. But today's passage, it's really hard for us to distance ourselves from the rebellion that we see. Let's listen to the reading of God's Word, Numbers chapter 12. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said to them, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. Now when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, O God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march until Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out from Hazeroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me as I pray for us this morning. Oh God, as we come to a passage which highlights the expediency with which we turn away from you, how quickly we question your sovereignty and your love for us, I ask that you would send your spirit to us to prevent us from hardening our hearts against this. Soften us. Help us to see not only our sin but quickly to see the forgiveness that you extend in Jesus. Help us to hear the words of life this morning. I pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. And I pray this in the mighty name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. 
One fall, when I was a kid, I was probably six or seven years old, my younger sister, who was about one at the time, was being potty trained. And her uh, positive reward was a little bowl of candy pumpkins. You know, like candy corns, but they're in the shape of pumpkins. And at one point that fall, that uh, little jar was empty. She hadn't eaten it all, and my mom wanted to know who the culprit was. My recollection is that my brother and I had both eaten some of it. He, of course, ate way more than I did. But to prove my innocence, I asked, why would I eat candy pumpkins? I don't even like them. I was adamant. I don't like candy pumpkins. And you know what? I'm not sure if my mom believed it or not, but I believed it. I don't think I ate another candy pumpkin until I was in college. I firmly believed I didn't like candy pumpkins. Every time I saw them, like in the store or at my grandma's house or wherever, I actually got this bad taste in my mouth. I don't like candy pumpkins. Now fast forward to college or whenever I had it next. I love love candy pumpkins. They're amazing. So now you might be saying to yourself, that's just the Holy Spirit punishing you for your lie. And that's possible. But the point is, we will believe almost anything that we tell ourselves, right? When that's an essential truth for the way that we live our lives, we believe the stories that we tell ourselves. And generally speaking, in the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, we look pretty good, don't we? We build ourselves up. We think fondly of ourselves, right? We, we like to find the good in our thoughts, in our actions, in our words. No matter how small that good actually was, it takes center stage. The truth is much different than that, isn't it? Right? The true story is that God actually loves us when we're low, and we're far lower than we like to admit. We build ourselves up. God loves us when we're low. Just two points for us this morning, starting with the idea that we build ourselves up. We tell ourselves stories all the time, all day long, right? I'm not talking necessarily about epic narratives in which you're the valiant victor and you're going against the bad enemy. It doesn't have to be major stories like that. Think back to your, the last literature class that you took. Stories can be short. They don't have to be long and drawn out. Let me give you an example. Short story you probably have told yourself before, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. It's simple. It's just one line. But that narrative is packed with so much implied information, right? Saying I don't deserve this carries a connotation that whatever this is, is incredibly terrible, right? It it is overwhelming and it is bad, And saying, I don't deserve it, implies that I am actually good. That my life and my actions have merited something better than whatever this is. Right? We sell ourselves narratives like this all day long. Simple, quick, but powerful. Let me give you a few more examples. No one sees me. No one cares about me. How did I get stuck with schlubs like this on my team? I'm the only one that's worth anything around here. I'm the only one that cares about anything. I can't do that again. 
I've done nothing wrong. I'm not the one who messed up here. Short, but powerful. We don't just tell stories to ourselves about ourselves, though. We tell stories to ourselves about other people, too, don't we? She doesn't deserve that. He doesn't love me like I love him. They are totally wasting their lives. Oh, don't worry about him. He's just being overdramatic. Look at him. I'll never be like him. That person, she is so cold, so unempathetic. This happened just the other day. We were driving down the road, Michaela and I, we got to a stoplight, and I heard this deep, throaty growl pull up beside us. Now, I'm not like a car guy. I'm not going to go spend my money on a really nice car or a really classic car. I'm not going to buy a junker and spend all my time uh, you know, working on it to fix it up. But I do appreciate a good car. So I noticed the 1968 Ford Mustang GT Fastback that pulled up next to us. Dark hunter green with silver trim. And as the light turned green, Michaela turned and said, whoa, look at that car. And I noticed the driver. 70-plus-year-old guy slowly turned his turn signal on. The light is green. Slowly put his foot on the gas. It's a Ford GT. (laughs) Turned right, slowly drove off down the road. And I told myself this story. He should have this Hyundai. That car deserves someone who knows how to drive it. Short. Seemingly innocuous. And we all tell ourselves stories like this all day, every day, but some of them, some of them get repeated, don't they? Day after day, we start to say the same thing. Some of them kind of sit as if it's on some replay system in our lives. And when we allow those stories to replay over and over again, they begin to build up, almost like a callus on your hand. They build up and they shape a whole new worldview. Now, if those stories actually have falsehoods in them, if they're not true, then that building up, that shifting worldview can become disastrous. And that's what we see from Miriam here. We don't know exactly how it started, but at some point, Miriam saw Moses' wife and she probably thought, eh, Moses could have done better. Simple, right? Seemingly innocuous. How many of you have thought the same thing about the spouse of a sibling or a friend? Yeah, could have done better. Now, it's possible that this woman that Miriam is uh, engaging with is Zipporah, Moses' wife that he married when he was in the wilderness before returning to Egypt to set God's people free. We're told in Exodus that she was a Midianite, and we see in other places in Scripture that Midian and Cush were related in some way. So it's possible that Miriam has had a relationship with her over time, and it's just built up, and she's finally gotten to the place where she thinks, yeah, could have done better, Moses. Perhaps this is Moses' second wife, though. After Zipporah had died, he got remarried to someone who was from the land of Cush. And Miriam just flat out thinks of her right away, could have done better. Cush is in northeast Africa, right? Present-day Ethiopia. Moses, a woman from Cush? You could have done better. Notice that the very first verse of this chapter points out her ethnicity twice. 
She's a Cushite. There is no disagreement among scholars that this woman was black and that the Israelites were not. Is Miriam's issue the color of this woman's skin? It doesn't say specifically. But what we know is that racism in Scripture and racism today start in the same way. A false narrative that is allowed to fester and remain and grow until it turns into a worldview that is completely false. Miriam's thought is, Moses could have done better than marrying a black Cushite woman. That false narrative grew. It hung around, it festered, and it became so infectious to her heart, to her mind, her actions, and eventually to her soul, which is what we see happening here. The same thing happens to us. It works its way in, the lie grows, and every part of our being is infested. Follow this narrative of Miriam's with me. Moses, a Cushite woman, you could have done better. In fact, Moses, you should have done better. You are the one leader of God's people. The the leader of God's people should not be connected to someone so lowly. Why would the one leader of God's people do something so unhinged? I mean, Moses is God's one true leader, right? Aaron, my brother, you were chosen by God to be the one high priest. And God has spoken to me just like he's spoken to Moses. He's spoken to me through dreams. That's why I'm called a prophetess in Exodus 12. And I've spoken to the people on God's behalf. And Aaron, you and I haven't done anything nearly as stupid as marrying someone like that. So we should be getting just as much notoriety. We are on equal footing with Moses. And whether she articulates it out loud or not, that last statement carries the weight of God doesn't know what he is talking about when he calls Moses the one leader. We're right, and God is wrong. This is the way a simple, small, untruthful narrative begins to build into something very dangerous. Right? I'm the only one who cares, quickly becomes, there's there's really no one like me. I deserve a better life than what God is giving me because there is no one like me the implication being, God doesn't love me, even if he says he does. I don't deserve this builds to become, I can't trust God to work good things for my life, so I'm going to take control. I'm responsible for the outcomes of my life. I don't need him anymore. On and on, each little lie of a life story that we allowed to hang around, unchecked, unverified, it establishes itself as a fundamental truth of life, and built upon it are the successive chapters of a story which place us at the center, places us on the throne, and God anywhere else. It's a worldview in which I am central. I am the best. I am the most right. And it's from a worldview like that that we see the formation of an elitist, self-righteous, entitled attitude. We fool ourselves into thinking we can't trust God. We shouldn't wait around for Him. That His plans are somehow wrong or ineffective. Maybe that He's uninvolved, that He's distant, and we don't really need Him around 
anymore. Now, this attitude is easy to see in other people, right? Hard to see in ourselves. But the elitist, entitled attitude, it's so foul. It's so unloving. It's so ungodly. It poisons us against others, and it poisons us against God. And it all starts from one small lie of a story. Thankfully, the one story that is true is that God loves us when we are low. God loves us when we're low. See, Miriam opposes God by opposing His chosen servant. She questions the choice God made in choosing Moses. And God responds. He proves that His relationship with Moses is unique, that Moses is faithful, that God's sovereign choice is correct. And when He departs, the consequences of her actions are that her skin has been covered in this patchy, white, flaky skin disease that they knew at the time as leprosy. And it reminds Aaron of the skin of a stillborn child. What a terrible but fair response. Her actions led to this consequence. And Aaron is so overwhelmed by her appearance that he turns to Moses Note the irony here. Rather than calling out to God in his own bravado, believing that he and his sister were on equal footing with Moses and their relationship with God, he turns to Moses and he says, please, do what God has chosen you to do and intercede. Ask for healing. And he does. Moses cries out to God, and when it happens, God shows mercy because of the cries of God's chosen representative. God cites not a biblical precedent, but a commonly held family code in the ancient Near East, where if a daughter had embarrassed or shamed her father, and the father spat in, his, in her face, the shame would only last for seven days. She would go out of the, the camp for seven days, and then her father's mercy would come down on her. God says, if this is how everyone lives, don't you think I'm more merciful than that? Her affliction, her embarrassment, the punishment that she deserves, I'm more merciful than you are. So she is sent outside of the camp for seven days. And when, he, when, when the seven days have passed, she is brought back in, and God continues to lead the whole group of His people, Miriam included. That is incredible mercy. And that's the true story of who God is. That is the character of God which is true and never changing. God is quick to show mercy. He is in the case of Miriam and He is for us as well. We, like Miriam, deserve punishment because of our sin. Our actions, our rebellion against God deserves a consequence. And we have no hope unless we appeal to God for mercy through a chosen representative. When we turn to God and ask for forgiveness, for healing, for renewal, and we do it through Jesus, God hears the cries of His chosen representative, and He forgives. Jesus, God's chosen representative, who lived a very humble life, He was rejected by his family. He was abandoned by his friends. And he suffered the most 
excruciating death on the cross. And many, many people at the time and since have looked at that and thought, this is supposed to be God? A carpenter from Nazareth who was executed by the Romans? That's your God? Eh, could have done better. But it is through Him. It is through His humiliation, His death on the cross, and His subsequent exaltation, rising from the dead and ascending to the Father on high, that we cry out to God through Him, and God hears His mediator cry and extends forgiveness. That is the story that we need to be telling ourselves every day. That is the narrative. And all of our life stories are like little pieces of fabric thread in this giant tapestry of God's love for His people, God's forgiveness and His faithfulness. That's the story. And your life is one thread in that story. So what would it look like to live as if that was really true? It would be like living Psalm 136 out loud. Psalm 136 says this. Parts of this are going to sound familiar. One, verse one, excuse me, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who alone does great wonders, the steadfast, His steadfast love endures forever. Forever to him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. On and on and on. The psalmist writes verse after verse, which end each of them with, For his steadfast love endures forever. What if that was the little story you told yourself every moment of every day? What if when you were tempted to tell yourself another story that potentially contains an incredibly dangerous lie, you followed it up with this? So it went something like, I don't deserve this, but the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. I'm the only one who cares here, but the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Don't worry about him, he's just being dramatic steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. She doesn't love me like I love her, but the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. What if that is what you said every day, every moment? And it makes me wonder, if we did that, how would that change the way we live? And it's important to know it's, it's not in the saying it that something magical happens, right? This reminds me of a scene from the Star Wars movie Rogue One. I know not everybody likes Star Wars. That's okay. Rogue One was a fantastic movie. You should all see it if you haven't yet. But it's about these rebels fighting back against the Empire like all of Star Wars is. And this little band of rebels, one of them is not a Jedi, but he knows that the Force is a, is a power source that he can tap into that makes him a better warrior, better fighter. The problem is he's blind, and he is restricted by having to walk with a walking stick, even though he has this awareness of this huge source of power. And there's this one scene in the movie where the group of fighters are pinned down, and there's lasers going at them, and the stormtroopers are trying to shoot them, and they zoom in on this character's face, and you can see that his eyes are cloudy, he can't see anything, he's holding his walking stick, and he just begins to say, I am one with the force, the force is with me. 
I am one with the force, the force is with me. And as he repeats it over and over again, he steps out of the little uh, in, you know, safety space that they were in onto the battlefield, walks across the battlefield. I am one with the force, the force is with me. Lasers are going past him. He's getting missed and he makes it to the other side. Right? The implication being, as he repeated this phrase over and over again, the force grew in him and there was this safety bubble of protection because he was saying this thing. He believed it and it happened. God's love is not like that. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there is nothing that you have done that will make God love you less. But if you remind yourself of that every moment of every day, it will change how you live. It will change the way that you talk to yourself. His steadfast love endures forever. I am a sinner. I am a failure. His steadfast love endures forever. Jesus lived the perfect life I could not live. He died the death I deserved to die, and He rose from the dead. So I know I'm a child of God. His steadfast love endures forever. No matter what comes my way, I will live and glorify Him because His steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful. Grateful for Your faithfulness, for Your commitment, for Your goodness, for Your steadfast love, especially when we are honest with ourselves about who we are, about how quickly we turn away from You and run to other things that we think will fill us with happiness or security or comfort. God, we turn away and we believe in these false narratives so quickly. Help us remember that the truth of all life is that you are God and we are not. And you love us. Your steadfast love endures forever. Pray this in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen.